our scripture focus this morning is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Human, humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Samuel said, then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. He, we won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning. That was a very, that was a, that was a very enthusiastic good morning. I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that. Good morning to you. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, this morning I get to lead us in our study of the scriptures, which is going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, which Evelyn just read for us. So if you haven't already turned there, I want you to pause because I want you to pray with me, and then you can flip open your Bibles to that. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you are a loving God, that you are a loving Father who sees us as we are. I pray, God, that in this time that we study your word, you would help us see what you see. I pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken our minds and awaken our hearts to the knowledge that you give and that you've shared in your scriptures. I pray, God, that we would see Jesus. I pray that we would see the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. 
So when uh, my wife was pregnant with our second son, Elliot, we were living in Guam then, and Guam is a little unique because it's a really small island and there are only two hospitals that are open up to the public. There are two hospitals and both of them have some, maybe I can say it, dramatic challenges that one would want to, to go and get treatment there. One of them, and so when you're having a baby, when you're delivering, you have to choose which one you're gonna go to. And that's what we faced. We were in that kind of decision. For one, one of them was not so good because its policies and procedures and all the equipment haven't, hadn't been updated since like the 60s. So everything was super old. I remember one time walking in through the halls when I was holding Tavia, our second, because she had two babies there. Our second, and I just saw this big crack along the wall and inside of it, all of the water from the rain outside was just leaking into it. And in order to fix it, since they couldn't, they just shoved hospital sheets into the crack. And you can't unsee that after you see it, right? Especially when you're holding a newborn. So you have this really outdated, really kind of damaged uh, hospital. But then the other hospital didn't have any nurses. So you gotta weigh your odds. You know, which one are you going to have? It was brand new, but they didn't have enough staff yet. They didn't have any nurses. So despite, you know, looking at these options, Amy and I, we decided we're gonna go with the one that was a little more run down, the one that didn't have as much updated policies and stuff. And one of the, one of the things that they also didn't do was that the hospital, given its policies were so old, they didn't uh, practice or embrace when a baby was born skin-to-skin contact on the mom with the mother. And what, I mean, doctors have found is incredible evidence of how healthy and how good it is for a baby to have skin-to-skin contact with a mother after they're born, right? One of the things is that a baby does is it regulates the baby's uh, body temperature which is incredible. After they're born, they lay the baby on the mother's chest and the baby's temperature changes. The heart rate regulates, also awesome. And then the baby will also learn how to nurse and learn like the mother and where she is. She will hear her heartbeat. And all of these amazing things that the hospital, because it wasn't written in the policy, it said, no, we will not do that. But that's, not, that's only saying about the mom. There are also benefits of skin-to-skin contact with the dad as well that I was super excited about. One of the things is even though the baby doesn't necessarily regulate its temperature or its heart rate, the presence of the dad, the presence of the father, is known by the baby through the dad's heartbeat. The dad will hear, or the baby will hear the father's heartbeat and become familiar with the father. It's this really amazing thing, and we were bummed when the hospital didn't practice any of that. But I bring this up because I found a loophole. I found a loophole. The policy of the hospital said that a mother can't do skin-to-skin contact, but it didn't say anything about the father. It didn't say anything about the dad. And the, the hospital was set up in such a way that it was the old school there was a glass window when a baby was born. It was swaddled up, put the, the, either the pink or the blue cap on, brought into the nursery where family members would look outside on the glass. They would look at the baby's 
from the other room. And it's a really quiet room. The glass was really thick, so no one can really hear anything. And the babies were there, and no one could really tell the baby by looking at them unless they read the, the last name on the baby, right? Well, because of my loophole, I found that they, didn't, they couldn't remove the father if there was nothing wrong with the baby. If the baby was healthy, they were fine. But this nursery waiting period was six to eight hours. Six to eight hours that the mom and the baby would be separated. And we weren't going to have that. So when Elliot was born, he was brought into this delivery room. And all of these family members and parents are looking at this row of babies. And they're standing there. And then they're looking awkwardly past the babies at me, shirtless, holding my son like this. And, just, and no one can hear it, so I'm like, you know, because the glasses, no one can hear anything. It was, really, it was really awkward. I didn't care. I didn't care, and guess what? I shaved that six-hour, six to eight-hour wait period, 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Elliot was back with Amy. And it was a really fun moment because it's one that I like to share. But it also made me think about something else from an outsider's perspective. Someone was to come in there and just look at all the situation that's happening. No one would see any real difference between the babies. They would look and they would just see the swaddled blanket. They would see the hat. They would see everyone lying in the same way. But for me, from my perspective, there couldn't have been a bigger difference. From my perspective, my heart was set on one child. My heart was set on one. And although he didn't know it yet, I had waited months for the moment when my son would hear my heartbeat, that I would no longer listen through the monitor to hear his little heartbeat, but now he would know mine. And underneath the story of my son Elliot's birth was the story of me, was the story of his father waiting to share my heart with my son. And friends, as we encounter this passage this morning, we, in, we intuitively, instinctively focus our attention all on the external, all on the movement of the story of of David being anointed. But my hope this morning is that we would see beyond the external story and we would see what God sees. We would see the Father's heart beating towards His Son, God's heart moving through His people to redeem them. Of all the places and of all the people in Israel, God sought to focus His heart's attention on the smallest most insignificant town in all of Israel to find the most insignificant, smallest son in the town who he would ultimately send Jesus so that we would know the heart of the Father who loved us first. This story is a story that is wrapped in, in God's heart for his people. Because when we look past just that narrative of what's happening, we start to see all of the things that God wants to show us. So the first thing I want to show you to, I want to bring your attention to is verse one. And that's this, this is the moment where Samuel 
has a burden and he needs some reassurance. Let's read verse one together. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Now, I believe that Samuel is a great example of a faithful follower of the Lord, someone who serves him faithfully. But I also think that Samuel is a great example of someone being human. I think Samuel is a great example of someone being human because this is just another episode that we find of Samuel fulfilling his ministry and being vastly disappointed by the outcome. He is in a sense of disappointment, similar to chapter eight when Israel rejects God and chooses a king for themselves, right? They want a king that's above, that's with the other nations. Samuel feels a burden sense of disappointment. He has this burden and he doesn't share it with people. That's why he, I think he's such a great example of his, of his humanity is that he is like us and that there are some burdens that we have that we feel and we feel are kind of hopeless and so we don't want to talk about them. So push it down, push it down, live your life. Push it down, live your life. Amidst, disappointed, amidst disappointment, and this is Samuel. He's carrying this burden again and this burden is from Saul. Saul rejecting God, disobeying him like we studied a few weeks ago. Samuel's walking in and God addresses that first. We get to see the first sign of what the Lord sees. We get to see how the Lord brings reassurance. The Lord brings reassurance and he does this by immediately addressing what Samuel's concerned about. I think the Christian faith if, if you're new to it, or maybe you're listening and you're exploring it, the first thing to know about the Christian faith, about the faith in Jesus, about faith in God, is that God is always going to bring up the thing that you don't really want to talk about. He's going to uncover the burden that you're trying to suppress. And when you're going out to live your life, he's going to say, no, 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 we're talking about this first. That's what we're going towards. And that's exactly what he does with Samuel here. But notice this with me, that when God brings up this difficult, this sensitive issue that Samuel's struggling with, notice Samuel's one directive that God gives him is surrounded by three statements of what God has already done. Samuel's one directive is surrounded by three statements that God has already done. He asks them, go, or how long? Because I have, I am, and I have. This is the power of a father who loves to bring reassurance to his children, is he shows them who he is. Reassurance by showing the presence and the movements of grace that God is giving. And we don't know all of the magnitude of this, but we just know that we can be comforted. We can be comforted and reassured in that God knows what our burdens are. 
And whenever he brings them up, he's going to bring them up with a solution. And that solution always revolves around himself. If you look at Moses, Moses was reluctant, was insecure, was unsure of things, unsure of his, his leadership. What does he says when God asks him to direct and lead all of the Israelites? Exodus 3.11, who am I that I should go? Who am I that I should go? Mary, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her that she's going to conceive, although she's a virgin, she asks, how can this be? And again in verse 2, we find Samuel asking, how can I go? How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Despite the reassurance that we are given by God, we have kind of a normal tendency, a normal tendency to be a little bit more reluctant than being obedient in the beginning. And guys, this human tendency that we have when we're met with divine direction, this reluctancy that we have, God is so gracious in giving a natural, this, this gracious response of reassurance. We can bring our, our problems to him. We can be honest with him. This is the thing that I want to take away is ask God questions. When you're concerned about something, ask him. Just ask him, why do we do that? Why do we act like he doesn't care? Why do we act like he's not interested? And instead we just take this burden, we try to push it down and we try to live our lives like normal when all the time God is saying, I, have these re- I, I can show you let me show you what I see. Psalm 139, verse 4 says, Before the word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. When I was doing some of my research with um, child development and preschool students, I was looking at how kids responded to hearing about God, about how he's presented, God the Father, how he's presented. And in these studies that we found, we found that about 8%, 8% of children who are listening to stories or lessons about God the Father instinctively think that he doesn't care about them. Without saying anything at all, children will say within their responses, that God doesn't care about them, that he's not interested in hearing them. That's terrible. That's terrible. We don't want, when we hear it from a child, from a four-year-old, thinking that God the Father does not graciously love them, does not care about their burdens, and does not want to bring reassurance, we say that's awful, and yet, what do we do? We take that same burden And sometimes we put it away. Friends, remember that God brings reassurance to show you his grace and to show you what he sees so that we can look beyond our everyday moment and we can see what he sees. God gives him this direction and Samuel now begins to experience this for himself because we get to see in this moment here 
this little play of verses three and four, we see that the Lord sees all circumstances, and he's going to let Samuel in on this, and I want to show this to you because I'm Verses two, let me read verses two and three. It says, the Lord answered after Samuel expressed some reluctancy. He said, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Verse three, then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. So we see the plan. The plan is to send Samuel to Bethlehem with kind of this undercover mission to anoint God's choosing, chosen king, right? The son of Jesse wouldn't become, the son of Jesse wouldn't become king right away, but he will be chosen by God. And this is a huge moment, right? This is a, this is a big moment, but I want to, I want to sink into the details a little bit and show you just all of these circumstances that are going on. Because I want to ask you, what about the sacrifice? If you, if you read verse, verse 2, it says, Take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So the question is, why is he doing a sacrifice for this anointing of a king? Because it's easy to miss this detail or to, to assume that the sole purpose of the sacrifice was to cover the real purpose of Saul's being there, Right? But if you think that it's just a cover-up or just a one-off, yeah, perform a sacrifice so that I can actually accomplish what I really want to accomplish, that is contradictory to the entire Old Testament, right? There has to be a purpose for a sacrifice. We just saw when Saul made that sacrifice and then told him to stop, how devastating that was and how important that was. So it seems like God is making this direction that's contradictory to the Old Testament. Or is it? We just have to ask ourselves, what's with the cow? Why is the cow here? This particular sacrifice of bringing a young cow wasn't intended for a king's anointing. When Saul was sacrificed, he, he, or when, sorry, not when Saul was sacrificed, when Saul was anointed king, they made a fellowship offering to God, not a sacrifice like this one. And when David is anointed as king in 2 Samuel, there's not even a sacrifice at all, right? There's not a sacrifice at all. So again, I ask, what's with the cow? Samuel had an additional task that through these circumstances, God was showing him in this moment. The young cow was a sacrifice for atoning an unsolved murder in Bethlehem that was committed in Bethlehem. In Deuteronomy, we find the specific instructions to bring a young cow if there is a family who has is, who is, um, experienced a loss and a murder that's, that they couldn't figure out who the, who the murderer was. So they would bring a young cow and they would make the sacrifice. Now, I just want to show you that there's the circumstance at play was that there was a hurting family in Bethlehem that suffered the loss of a loved one. God was bringing justice and he was bringing comfort all while eliminating any kind of 
concern of what Samuel's purpose there was for those who were watching and who would be reporting to Saul, it would eliminate all of that. He was also discreetly choosing a future king of Israel. Unbeknownst to everyone else, God was doing a multi-layered level of events that all displayed his sovereign grace over Israel. All in this matter, while we look and Samuel even sees just one purpose going on. Underneath one decision is a million different movements of grace that God makes throughout the world. And this was that moment, the cow, the cow was incredibly encouraging to me when I was reading that. Because I remembered that everything that has happened this year, everything that has happened this past year, God is doing a million things at once, isn't he? God is doing a million different things at once and we do not know the depth and the breadth of God's grace unless we ask him, help me see what you see. Help me see what you see. Let me see the circumstances at play from your perspective because when we do that, friends, we are going to really, we are really gonna see a powerful sovereign, gracious, loving God who is accomplishing so many different things at once. Samuel goes, he travels there, he trusts him, verse four, it says that the Lord directed Samuel and he went, and he went to Jerusalem. Despite his reluctance, despite his, you know, needing some reassurance, Samuel goes anyway. And he goes there, and I love this, I love this, this uh, verse four here where it says they trembled. The trembled, that word is the same word that um, Agag, the king, who gets chopped up in a bunch of pieces, he, this is the same word that they use. Now, all of the commentators, they're like, I don't know why they were so scared. I was like, I do. The last memory that they have of Samuel was him cutting up a guy into pieces. That's scary. That's a scary thing. So anyway, everyone wonders what he's doing, but then they see the cow, and they get it. And then Samuel gets brought into Jerusalem where he invites Jesse and his sons to go. And here we, got, we begin to see another development, another thing, another element of what's going on. But Samuel doesn't see it right away. Because we have a natural tendency to make assumptions of what God is doing instead of discerning what he is actually doing. The Lord rebukes our assumptions. Sometimes he rebukes it graciously. Sometimes he makes it a little bit more clear. But the Lord rebukes our assumptions. Let's read down to verse six through seven. It says, when they arrived, this is when Jesse's sons arrived, Samuel saw Elab and said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Yesterday I uh, stumbled upon this article by Dane Ortland, and he was talking about our tendency to project our expectations of what we think 
God is because our expectations of what we think is we tend to think he's like us. Tends that we, he thinks, we think, he thinks. That doesn't even make sense. Let me back up. Our expectation of God is to think he is like us. He likes what we like. There we go. That's how I said it. And while I agree with him, I would add, I would make one, one addition there. So not only do we expect God to like or to do the same things that we do, we also tend to assume what God will do based off of our feelings and emotions and what we're kind of wanting at the time. Because our hearts, as we see here, are, being, are misled. Our hearts do not see what God sees. God's motives are not our motives. Let me give you an example. When I was at Bible college in one of my Old Testament classes, I remember a distinct memory of two professors having this super deep conversation, asking the class this question, and this was the question. If Jesus and LeBron James, LeBron James played basketball, who would win? I hate that question. I hate that question. Because they would say, this is, just listen here, because I, I remember this very clearly. This is what he said, this is what they said, because your answer shares your intuitive theological disposition of who Jesus is. Come on. No, I don't like that question because it's a silly question. And it's one that's unanswerable because right now some of you might be trying to answer the question in your head. If Jesus and LeBron James played basketball, who would win? It's an unanswerable question, so stop thinking about it. In one sense, you assume you overassume Jesus' divinity, and in another sense, you overassume Jesus' humanity. That's, those are the two things, so stop thinking about it. I'm just kidding. We can talk about it later, but I don't like the question. I don't like the question because it assumes too much. It puts, puts us in a posture of assumptions. And God is very clear to say, I do not see, I am not the same as you. I do not see what you see. Therefore, don't assume you know what I'm thinking. You could say that the question assuming that God fits into, I'll call it the social imaginary. Some theologians like to use this word social imaginary, mean the construction of what we think God is like and how he operates in the world. We make assumptions on that. But God says, I'm far, far beyond it. And gently, graciously rebuking Samuel in this moment, Samuel sees Eliab and he says, that's the king right there. But God says, wait, you see what is visible, but I see the heart. The Lord sees the heart. So what is the heart? If we were to, to look at scripture and to see how that's, defined for us. The Bible describes the heart with the word lavav in Hebrew or cardia in Greek. And what it means is it's this innermost self, not just the physical organ. It's this inner self. It's the part of us, the part of us that, that desires, 
that loves, that feels and carries burdens, that longs for eternal satisfaction. It's the visceral pulse, it's the visceral beat that we live day in and day out that moves us closer and closer to the everyday movements of life and how we interpret them. It's what pulls us forward, it's the heart. Psalm 147, it says that God is not impressed with strength of a horse, he does not value the power of a warrior. The Lord values those who fear him, those who put their hope in his faithful love. And when we compare that to the motives and the actions of the heart, we begin to see that there are things that we value. There are things that we desire, things that we worship, that when held to Scripture may not be the same things that God does. The values of our heart, the, the, the material objects, the success, the, the, the moments of praise, the different things that we feel and that we naturally, viscerally drive towards, that feel good, that feel right, that sometimes seem correct, God says, wait, let me show you what I see because I see beyond the physical. I see your heart. I see what you worship. I see what you're moving towards. That's why Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, guard your heart above all else for it is the source of life. Guard your heart. We need to guard. We need to guard our hearts because God is telling us you can so easily be misled. Don't think about the things that you're just looking at. Think deeper. Ask me. Talk to me. Let me bring reassurance of your concerns because if you're going to lead to your own conclusions, where are they going to go? Your heart may mislead you. You may be walking in the wrong direction even though you think it's the right one. Let me show you what I see. Let me show you what I see. We need to protect our hearts because they are misleading. But God sees all of us and this story continues to see with Samuel being presented with seven of, his, of Jesse's sons. And we find to the surprise that God hasn't chosen any of them. So we're back looking at the story, at the narrative here. Samuel asks if this is all, all of them. But we learn that there's one more, that there's one more among the sheep. Now, sometimes we give Jesse a hard time here. Some people give David a hard time, saying he was a teenager, he was like, not there because he liked to be with the sheep. He did. He did like sheep. But what I think what we see here is that this, the way that David is pictured is one, David isn't given a name yet. His name isn't mentioned here. His position in the family is neglected. His position in the family is, is low. And his status in the community is 
fairly non-existent. So how we could describe the youngest son of Jesse is being one who is lowly, lowly. He is humble. He is not, he is not, he's not above anyone. He is the lowest of the low, the smallest of the small. And yet we find in this moment this powerful, powerful dynamic of God's heart towards his people is that the Lord seeks the lowly. Let's read verse 11 through 13 together where it says, Samuel asked him, are all these the sons you have? There is still the youngest, he answered, but right now he is tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Pause there for one second. Quiz question. What does it not describe the youngest son of Jesse as? Saul had a lot of height. Is his height mentioned at all? No, it's not mentioned at all, and that's on purpose. We want him to, they, we, he is small. They want you to think of him as small. Let's continue. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Now, we often think about David playing his lyre in the fields, worshiping God all day and all night. We think about that We think about him doing that, but we have to remember that in this moment, he is really no different than his other sons, or than his other brothers. He's no different than his other brothers. The only difference is that he does play the lyre and that he does love being with sheep. That's the biggest difference between him. This story is not about David. This story is about God's heart pursuing the lowest of the low and bringing them up to display his heart for them. This story is a story of God's fatherly love to David. Not anointing David because he was already praising God ahead of time because we see that when Samuel anointed him, Then the Spirit came. Then the Spirit came and filled David with the Holy Spirit and never left him from then on. We get to see in that moment that David is not already some some holy kid who's who's now taken the place of of the hero, we see that David is now swept up into God's redeeming story where he would eventually, eventually lead the lineage that would lead to Jesus. Do you see how underneath, underneath the external moments of what's happening, there is a dramatic, dramatic redemptive story at play that God is fulfilling. God's will is moving. And yet, if we were like his brothers, we would only be confused 
and wonder what's going on here. But the Lord seeks the lowly. And not only does he seek the lowly, he brings them up into his presence so that they too can see all of the circumstances, all of the love, and all of the wonderful things that he is doing, all of the movements of grace that are at play. So we have to ask ourselves, when we think about our own hearts, when we think about our own hearts, all of the insecurity, when we think about our overt assumptions, when we think about our needs, the question is what do we need? What do we need? The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is God's heart made flesh, given to us so that we can have a new heart. This is the beauty of the dynamic at play is that Jesus is the physical reality, the physical heartbeat of God's longing, his love, his desire for us. If we want to know, if God was to describe his heart, if we want to know what God's heart is like, we simply look to Jesus. We simply look to Jesus. Because in a world filled with broken hearts, in a world filled with anxiety, in a world filled with overt assumptions and expectations about what God is and what he does, we need a heart transplant. We need new hearts. We need someone to turn our brokenness, our insecurities, our reluctant faith, our assumptions into a heart that can stand before God and the question is how. God answers it for us by giving us his spirit to change our hearts through faith in Jesus. To see what God sees is to see the dynamic reality of salvation at play in the hearts of men and women. God changes the heart. And here's just the deeper side of that. He changes our heart because Jesus went to the cross to feel the absence of God's heart. Jesus went to the cross to feel the absence so that we would never have to. So that we would never be left alone in our burdens. We would never be left alone in our insecurities. We would never ask what if or help me understand and be left with a silent answer. Jesus went to the cross and was brought into utter silence by God the Father so that we would always have an answer of grace, so that we would always have an answer in the presence of God. Faith in Jesus is being given a new heart through the Spirit so we then begin to see what the Lord sees. we then begin to see what the Lord sees. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17 says, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, 
also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. That cannot happen without God's miraculous, redemptive, heart-transplanting, heart-moving action on our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit accomplished by Jesus. Amen? We are not able to do that for ourselves. And, live, and if left to ourselves, we are left with the burden. We are left carrying the anxiety. We are left with the no answer. We are left with silence. But we have been given a new heart. We have been given a new heart through the Spirit and our lives now look different. We begin to see what God sees because of the grace of Jesus. Sam Albury, he says this. He says, when Paul is talking about Romans, he is saying a Christian, as a Christian, you really have been given a new heart. You really have been given new desires. You really have been given a new mindset. You really are now driven ultimately by the Spirit. I love this part. Frail you, failing you, messed up you. There's not just been a change in you, there's been a change of you. Friends, those who have stepped in faith of Jesus, there is far more at play. There is far more than you quite understand at this moment. But as you walk with Jesus, ask him, let the Spirit show you just how much he is moving in your life because as you see it through faith, as you walk in obedience, talk to him. Talk to him. Share the reluctancy of your motives. Share the burdens that you keep thinking that aren't going to be uncovered, that you don't need to address. Share these things with God because then, only then, you will begin to see what the Lord sees. The Lord does not see the physical. The Lord looks beyond it and sees the heart. And for us, that gives us great comfort because that same spirit that is in Jesus is now within us. And that is something to live our lives and to be excited about. If we only think about the external movements, the only external movements of this story even, we miss the story of God's heart pursuing his people, leading them in to his ultimate redemptive work, drawing them close and filling them with his spirit so that their hearts are made new, so that our hearts are made new. God doesn't simply let us be alone. God is actively moving within us and around us to show us his ultimate grace and his love that he is pouring out over and over again in you. Will you guys pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, I pray that as we think about this reality of your divine ability to see us for as we are, we would remember our own capabilities. We would remember our own faults and fallenness and be filled with hope, not despair. I pray, God, that you would equip us with your spirit so that we can see just an ounce of the depth of how you are, have changed us, how you have given us new hearts to no longer just see the physical, but to get fragments of what you see. So that in everyday moments, in everyday anxieties, and in everyday challenges, we would look at them with a new, a new perspective. I pray, God, that you would help us with these things. Help us see what you see because you ultimately see the heart. In Christ's name, amen.